Welcome to the IBM Podcast Network. How can a rapidly growing city protect its heritage? How have Indians thought about foreign policy and strategy since the times of Kautilya? What is the state of Rohingya refugees who have found refuge in India? Welcome to the 12th episode of the Pragati Podcast, your fortnightly podcast on politics, economics and public policy. Where we tackle all of this and more. We are your hosts, Hamsani Hariharan and Pavan Srinath. In the last episode, our guest was Saurabh Chandra, a tech entrepreneur from Bangalore. Saurabh spoke to Hamsani about the future of the information technology industry in India. In the first half of today's episode, Pavan and I catch up on news. And in the second half, I sit down with Aparna Pandey to look at how India's foreign policy has evolved over the years. Aparna Pandey is a scholar at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. and is a well-known foreign policy analyst. Aparna recently authored the book From Chanakya to Modi, The Evolution of India's Foreign Policy. She is here on the show to discuss her book. What we are not doing today is speaking about Independence Day, which just happened earlier this week. Yes, if you want to read more about Independence Day, please check out last week's filter that I wrote on the same. So what we'll instead be doing is... Picking up maybe one or two things that uh, came our way over the last two weeks that you might have missed. Yeah, something that I read about recently is uh, this question that came up in the parliament about what the Indian government was doing for setting up camps and other facilities for Rohingya refugees from Myanmar. And it was really interesting because um, Kiran Riju, the junior interior minister, said that India was in talks with the Myanmar and Bangladesh government to deport 40,000 of Rohingya refugees who are currently in India. So where are the Rohingya refugees in India? Are they close to, say, the Bangladesh or the Myanmar border? Interestingly, no. So a majority of them are actually concentrated along the western border. Okay. Um, so in Rajasthan, Jammu, UP, Haryana, Delhi, and also Hyderabad. Okay. And so there have been a few issues in uh, April this year. The Chamber of Commerce and Industry in Jammu said that they would launch an identify and kill movement if the government didn't pay heed to moving the Rohingya refugees somewhere else. And the government's also said that the refugees face, you know, huge, they pose huge security problems for the country. Um, but tell me, what is the status of uh, refugees who come into India? Does India have an articulated refugee policy? Do we work with the UN on this? Okay, so India has no refugee policy whatsoever. We haven't signed any of the UN refugee conventions till date. And what we say is that we follow the norm. Uh, so India says we've all we've always been a home for people. Uh, and the most famous citation they have of this is that in 1971, they welcomed 9 million refugees from East Bangladesh. So they said, you know, we don't need a refugee policy. We will do this on a case-by-case basis. So what are they doing in this? case. So in this case, what they said is that of the 40,000 refugees, 14,000 of them have uh, been granted refugee status by the UN. But the remaining 26,000 are illegal immigrants and anyone who doesn't have proper documentation will be sent back. But this is an absurd argument to make on many levels. One is that 
India does hasn't signed the UN Refugee Convention, but it's still saying we will recognize anyone who the UN has recognized as a refugee. India has no definition of a refugee whatsoever itself, uh, unless the army has set up camps or other facilities, like it's done in the past with like Tibetans or Sri Lankans or um, other uh, communities. Okay, but having said this, uh, India in recent times also made a policy change where they welcomed, I think. religious minorities in neighboring countries right yes they did but that was the citizen amendment bill that was okay. in 2016 it hasn't been passed as an act where they said that they would welcome christians from afghanistan hindus from our neighboring states but uh, left out any other mention of refugees they said okay. if these people and sikhs sta- from pakistan yes right? sikhs from pakistan they said if these people have stayed in india for long enough a period then we'll give them citizenship all right So it's not about accepting new people across the border. It's about conversion of status of those who might already be there. Yes. But even here, uh, Rohingyas are also a religious minority in a country which is uh, primarily Buddhist, right? Yeah. So perhaps the same rules should apply. The same rules should apply, and a lot of people are saying, you know, India can't. Follow customary law whenever it wants. It can't say, "Oh, we follow the norm with respect to persecuted minorities in one place." But on the other hand, they're not following non-refoulement, which is forcing refugees to go back to a place where their lives are in mortal danger. And also, I guess this is complicated of because of India's ongoing sort of talks and. I don't want to call it a conflict with Bangladesh but mm-hmm. the status of Bangladeshi illegal immigrants in India where sort of India tells Bangladesh that it has so many million uh, illegal refugees and Bangladesh says no we have zero Uh, yeah so bangladesh uh, recently said that new delhi is helping them solve their own uh, migration problem with respect to the rohingyas so they've set up this tiny island in the sundarbans where they said that all the rohingyas were going to be relocated there are about 1 lakh rohingyas currently in bangladesh okay. and they're looking for india to help them out in some way yeah so i think uh, i remember um, our colleague nitin having an interesting idea about how to manage bangladeshi migration into mm-hmm. india where the big challenge was a demographic change happening in certain border districts in assam and so on mm-hmm. where which can only be diffused effectively if india has a policy where we can, the government can help redistribute refugees coming in and we are a big country and there are many parts in the country where labor is still in short supply mm-hmm. and uh, you know refugees are welcome and often assimilate quite well into indian society so if assimilation was an issue i totally get it and of course security concerns will remain mm-hmm. so similarly i think with the rohingya case i think we have to take the moral high ground india has to be proactive beyond what they do at home as well if they want to perhaps solve this Yeah, I agree completely. I think what we need is a refugee policy. I get that we don't want to bind ourselves to commitments that we make on an international scale, but considering the way things have evolved in the Indian subcontinent and how India's as the big brother always has to take responsibility for these things, it would help us domestically to also have a refugee policy. Certainly. But okay, far away from refugees and Rohingyas, what have you been reading about, Owen? So there's a tiny little development that's happened in Bangalore. I just want to use it as an excuse to talk about the larger issue. Um, so Bangalore has recently set up a committee to uh, manage heritage conservation in the city. 
Okay. So in the last couple of years in Bangalore, we've had several instances of tussles between activists, conservationists, and the government and others, uh, where uh, certain heritage buildings built during the British times or earlier were planned to be sort of repurposed for some other use. And uh, so this was happening in an ad hoc way, and Bangalore really does not have a system to manage its heritage. So how it works in India is that uh, you know you have. monuments of international importance of course which get the unesco sort of blessing and after that there are all kinds of rules and restrictions that come in which sort of finance the reconstruction and maintenance which uh, allow for no development within a small radius and so on so that's at the top end right that's okay. the unesco stuff after that you have the archaeological survey of india which you know identifies nationally important monuments and safeguards them there are problems there they are underfunded and so on but still they do something uh, beyond that you have state archaeological departments which also play a role for whatever is you know mm-hmm. one grade lower and karnataka is not too bad at that but the problem is in a city like bangalore first of all our heritage might be a little younger and there's a lot that happens in a city which comes outside the bounds of you know state and nationally recognized monuments and in a city heritage needs to be looked at beyond individual buildings heritage can be an area it can be of course there are non all kinds of things about ways of life and so on mm-hmm. but as far as the state is concerned the big thing is how do you uh, preserve the look and feel of an entire area which has had great historical significance which you know which is very difficult to do in a rapidly growing city like bangalore fair enough but how can you do it how can you preserve the heritage of a place that is growing that fast right so the one thing you can do and this has been done on many big streets and so on in all parts of the world it's that if say you still have old heritage structures with a certain architecture uh, lining the road then you sort of what you do is you pass laws and bylaws where the external facade cannot be changed in its look and character probably it needs to be refurbished and maintained to an extent but inside the buildings people can do whatever they want they can break everything they can put some you know reinforcing beams and so on and then completely reinvent the place however they want to so you can have a professional shop restaurant anything inside and a great looking building from outside so that way say you know mg road in bangalore about 20 30 years ago had a certain feel and a certain charm to it now you have big ugly jewelry stores and others which you know every building looks different from the other either it's dilapidated or it's grotesque mm-hmm. and uh, that's a really really bad thing that's happening in most parts of the country and in bangalore where heritage is a little more scarce I, it's not non-existent bangalore by the way is at least 500 years old it's mm-hmm. older than many of the british born uh, cities like uh, chennai and uh, uh, delhi no that was not a uh, not <laughs> chennai and mumbai i'm sorry not delhi and that wasn't a bab but it wasn't <laughs> but so so this is the idea you can pass laws like this you can give tax incentives to people who do not break old buildings you know because it's easy when rather it's easier when Uh, heritage buildings are under public control mm. right uh, there the problems are inefficiency bureaucracy all of that but you still have the control to do what you want with it uh, if heritage buildings are in private lands uh, then you know people uh, might decide that you know real estate prices are high enough i'm going to do what i want to over here yeah that way the municipality or whoever's in charge of preserving the heritage has very little incentive and the funds right to go around and 
try to convince people. Yes, but this is one of those things where if you sort of maintain the heritage of a city, if you give it an identity, if things look beautiful, it has a huge impact on property prices in the city. It has a huge impact on economic growth. You know, uh, Bangalore is a big city where a lot of things happen, but and it's a launching hub for a lot of tourism. But a lot more can happen in the city itself. Mm-hmm. So that you need public spaces and you need a lot of visible heritage. And many and Bangalore being so rapidly growing, most people who come in don't know that this city has a heritage to speak of, which people can go to and interact with. True, you don't think of Bangalore as a tourist destination in the traditional sense. Yes, no, not at all. So, what is the value apart from this of um, city heritage? Well, uh, apart from it, it's it's really figuring out um, how to generate. Some amount of positive social capital in the city. So this is a little big. This is beyond just heritage. But how? I mean, why do people go to New York and not litter? Why do people come to Bangalore for the first time and litter? The difference is that the norms of that city, New York. It's not just the laws. It's not just that you'll get fined. Singapore, you're a little scared of chewing gum. But when you go to New York, you're not scared of throwing litter. But you just know that New York's a clean city where people don't do certain things. So uh, those kinds of positive norms that a city establishes can be very powerful. Unfortunately, Indian cities don't really have norms. And Indian cities are getting millions and millions of people uh, coming in who have never lived in a city before. And the norms that make a village successful are very different. Mm. So in in cities, you have to respect anonymity. You have to respect sort of uh, privacy to a greater extent. You cannot intrude uh, more easily. And you have to follow, you know, more things. You have to sort of figure out what not to do much better. And our cities are very, very bad at sort of um, guiding uh, fresh migrants to such behavior. Is this a societal failure? Possibly, but it's something that we can fix. Mm. Uh, And I think heritage is a great pillar around which things Mm. like that can be built. Because if people can identify the city with something beyond, say, Vidhan Sauda, which is the only image, either Vidhan Sauda or UB City or maybe Lalbagh Gardens, right? That's about it. And I think we need more in the city and in pretty much every other city in the country. True. The cities do deserve better in that sense. All right. Thanks, Pawan. We'll come back in the second half with Aparna Pandey. We're from the Daily Pow, a Bombay-specific food and culture website, and we have a weekly podcast called The Powdcast. That's Pow with an O, not with a V. Why is it with an O and not with a V when most people spell Pow with a V? Because it's Pow, not Pow. And you know some people also spell it with a U. Like Pow, 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 like Yeah, like Pow Lagu. Yeah, like Pow Lagu. So weird. To listen to more of us and what we have to say about the city and its culture and its food, uh, listen to the Powdcast every week on IVM Podcasts. Hi, welcome back to the Pragati Podcast with me, Hamsani Hariharan. Today on my show, I have a very special guest. Aparna Pandey is the director of the Institute on the Future of India and South Asia at the Hudson Institute at Washington, D.C. She's recently authored a new book titled From Chanakya to Modi, Evolution of India's Foreign Policy. And the book explores civilizational ties, uh, civilizational roots of India's foreign policy and the roots of India's engagement with the world. Welcome to the show, Aparna. Thank you so much, Anthony. A pleasure to be here. So your book title itself, From Chanakya to Modi, indicates that we go back to Chanakya every single time that we have a discussion about India's strategic culture or its foreign policy. So what was the starting point for you? Actually, 
this is a book i wanted to write for a long time hmm. um i wrote my dissertation many years ago on pakistan's foreign policy and i wanted to write on on, on india but i didn't want to write a book which just provided the chronological details you know hmm. what hmm. happened between 47 and 54 and 62 i wanted to look at what are the ideas that influenced india's foreign policy and who were the individuals who shaped it and then what are the institutions that executed and so i just i wanted to go back in history and see that you know who were the ancient philosophers ancient strategists who wrote and so if you go back in history chanakya is somebody you have to look at of course um i mean he people call him india's machiavelli um then so many he also has a different name but you have to go back to him uh, and that's why chanakya um i mean there are many others who i talk about but chanakya is one of them so you also go back to like manu and ashoka who are generally overlooked when we're talking about these things what kind of ideas do you think they brought to the fore so um what i believe is that i mean there's um, there i mean india's foreign policy i see it as they're, they're like these strands mm-hmm. and so there's a realist strand in it mm-hmm. and i can trace it back to chanakya re chanakya there's also uh, what i call a messianic idealist strand some people may not like the my phrase but i believe there is it's there and that i trace back to the time of i mean to the moral i mean it um to a time almost as old as chanakya hmm. meaning the ashok and uh, the buddhist influence which comes through the ages but becomes reinforced when we come to mahatma gandhi and our national movement the national hmm. movement has a very strong deep rooted moral dimension and it stayed with us since then so um the realist and idealist dimensions were with us right from the ancient times hmm. the other two i add are a little, i mean actually the third one also isolationism is also um old but um not as old as the realist and the idealist oh, where does it go back to so isolation actually goes back at some level to the ancient philosophers because if you read them and you talk about chakravartin a chakravartin mm. was somebody who was supposed to um sort of you know you conquer territory you build an empire but your empire was never supposed to extend beyond what we call the indian subcontinent mm. you were not supposed to forcibly take over territory outside that area that was not your area your area your cultural influence could go beyond okay trade mm-hmm. commerce but you did not you were not supposed to covet an empire outside of that subcontinent uh-huh. so there's a kind of a semi isolation that you mm-hmm. know yes you know i have trade ties with greece and rome and uh, you know cultural influence mesopotamia but no i mean if and if you look in history except for the chola dynasty hmm. there's no other indian empire which has actually gone very far out and act, i mean some still debate whether or not the cholas had an empire yeah, it was yeah. just you know trade hmm. but at least they went as far as what is present day indonesia most of our other empires if you go down the ages um yes afghanistan was one extreme but beyond that we never really extended the mughals tried to take back some part of fargana but didn't really succeed hmm. and at some stage people decided that what is present day afghanistan and kashmir that would be the himalayas would be our boundary, our boundary. we would not go beyond that uh, territorially you know to actually mm-hmm. have an empire and this goes against like the western geopolitical idea of the state as an organism that grows right yes uh, which is very interesting because you would think that isolationism is still that something that came about at the time of independence because we had no other choice actually um the fourth strand is what comes comes up during the british raj and that is what i call the imperialist legacy so the so 
while I believe that while Indians, Indian empires, Indians were aware of the world, and so we had civilizational influence right from you know you can say the what's present day Gulf all the way through Southeast Asia, East Asia. Our way of our view, I mean, our viewing this as a strategic area or our neighborhood, as we call it, you know, Gulf of Aden to Straits of Malacca, is a British legacy because they saw India as the heart of Asia or the empire, and, and without India, they could not hold on to this. And so, there is that legacy with us now, but I trace it to the British, not further back. The strategic dimension, I mean, not the civilizational, comes yeah. more. Uh, with the British and the way they viewed, and therefore that part of that legacy remained. Mm-hmm. Now, part of it didn't because under our founding fathers, like Nehru especially, we wanted good ties with the Gulf, mm-hmm. but we did not. We did not seek to have a strategic influence. You know, keep our officers there, mm-hmm. or you know, in the case of Afghanistan, pay subsidies to the Afghan tribes. Yeah, we yeah. didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Relations, yes, trade, commerce, everything, but a desire to sort of you know. Be focused inward, or have good relations, um, have an influence, but not necessarily uh, maintain a sphere of influence like other countries, like other powers did. But there are people who also argue that that is sort of a, a, a pragmatic view that came from the fact that India couldn't, right? India didn't have the capability to look beyond itself, which is why we were inward-looking. We had you know, a socialist method of planning and so on. So they were focused just on growth in a sense. Yes. So, I mean, our founding, like Nehru did believe that and most of the founding, most of uh, the people at that time, uh, along with him, believed that we need to focus, focus within. It's still prevalent. There are many people who will tell you that why should we be a great power or why, why should we be like the other great powers? Mm-hmm. Why don't we just be India mm-hmm. and we should focus within? That is true, but the question is that I guess at the end, the end of the day, we have to decide what we want to do. And so the, the reason, what I want to, I guess, encourage or provoke is a discussion mm-hmm. that there are people who say we shouldn't be a great power. There are people who say we should become a great power. There are people say who, who say we're already becoming a great power. But either ways, if we do, then do we have the wherewithal? And are we really interested? Mm-hmm. Because we, ha- we need to want to um, focus on, you know, whether it's military capability, economic capability, and a desire that, you know, this is our neighborhood, we need to maintain influence, so we should do things. Or we should say, fine, you know, let's withdraw and not really care about what's happening outside, but we won't be able to. There's too much we depend on outside. True. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of people say, you know, India should become a great power just because that's the only way we'll survive, right? I mean, that's a really school of thought that runs. Uh, but just going to uh, talking about like independence of foreign policy and strategic autonomy, that was such a big thing during the Cold War, right? Post-liberalization, there's this thing of what is India's foreign policy shaping up to be, which is still going on. What do you think of this entire debate about strategic autonomy in a sense? I have um, one who's been a skeptic. I mean, I I understand why why non-alignment appealed. Hmm. Because there were a couple of reasons. One, um, Nehru and the uh, and many of his co- uh, colleagues believed that India needed to be kept out of what they feared was going to be a third world war. Hmm. They did not want to be part of military alliances. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you realize that to this day we don't want to be called an ally, yeah, yeah. friend, partner, 
you know all, all, of all that fine but, yes. but not an ally because alliance means military force it doesn't mean anything else yeah so there was that dimension you know keep india out of if you read nehru speeches he says there's going to be a third war hmm. there's going hmm. to be a world war we have to stay out of it they the part of second part was that india was too weak they want india need to be developed and built um lift people out of poverty build economy build its resources so don't spend money because if you part of an alliance you'll have to either spend money or borrow money from others mm. third was that there were diverse views at independence what should india do i mean so um nehru's view was one patel's was slightly different you had the swatantra party you had the jan sang and yeah. you had the left mm. and so it would be very difficult if india had chosen either one of the two blocks mm. how do you bring consensus and there was a there was a belief that there should be consensus in what india does in this foreign policy so i understand why they started off with it i do i don't really know why it was continued for so many years and why even why once uh, cold war ended we seem to have moved from non alignment to strategic autonomy hmm. by and large means the same yeah yeah i do believe that at the heart of it lies this belief that when india was a colony India could not take any decision Indian leaders were not involved mm-hmm. believe that nobody else should have a say now it doesn't you you we live in a world where any decision we take we have to factor in what others believe in but just like at some level at the United States India too wants to be able to say that we took this decision because we wanted to mm-hmm. and in india's favor i'll give you an example recent one paris huh? why did we sign that i mean what was the explanation it is good for india we chose october hmm. gandhi jayanti because we want to say that we are doing it for an indian reason and because hmm. it's good for india and even after the united states has withdrawn from it india delhi still maintains it is an indian interest to be hmm. there but the way we have i mean it's all the every i mean by and large policies are how i present them to you mm, yeah it's the same thing um over the last 70 years but i'm presenting it to you in a different way and what i'm the argument i'm making is that it is an india so this independence part is even if it is very difficult even if it is rarely being india has rarely been able to take a totally take a stand where there's nobody else standing it somehow makes indian leaders feel good to be able to say that we have walked this lonely path and nobody else has been with us even though others have been True. to reinforce that others have been things like you know territorial integrity partition mm-hmm. legacy um you know the border disputes mm-hmm. which so are sovereignty sovereignty then there's you know that south asia for all the subcontinent is very important mm-hmm. so every i mean every indian prime minister most of the strategists will tell you that our neighbors are our first layer of security and that's again where that imperialist imperialist legacy mm. comes because delhi believes that delhi knows best so you know nepal must keep our interests in mind why doesn't pakistan understand mm. um sri lanka must do this and show must bangladesh and bhutan we by and large have had better relationship yeah, but yeah. for different reasons but most most of the time with our neighbors we want them to understand that they are our first layer of security and to put and us first as well put us first absolutely the only pa- only area where we actually send troops or commandos or try to make sure that nothing happens 
if you go beyond that economic foreign policy we haven't really it's only recent years the last mm. decade or two that we've paid attention to before that it used to be our business organizations fikki and yeah yeah the others used to do it um the diaspora again is something very new mm. but on the other hand issues like you know multilateralism mm. um india has been a champion we were part of united nations even when we were a colony mm. and we retained that seat and we are a champion we want to be on the security council it matters to us but any decision we take any vote we take again has to reflect our independence so we'll very often vote against many of our yeah yeah friends because it's a it's a desire to explain project our project our independence that's interesting because earlier uh, through the cold war india was seen as the roadblock for a lot of things right whether it was non proliferation or the wto rounds and now a, a lot of people are saying you know in, maybe india's gotten on board because they're signing the paris agreement and india was the one who pushed for globalization at the recent wto talks uh, but india's stance itself in that sense hasn't changed right they're still pushing for the things that they were uh, even during the cold war uh but do you see a change uh between india of the cold war and india in the 2000s and india now yes i mean yes and no i mean i see some continuity i see some change so for example let's look at wto hmm. the trips issue if hmm. not um, yeah. intellectual property rights um because india is different and india is unique india sort the product pr- process pattern yeah, difference yeah. then once our uh, our domestic industries were a little stronger and we realized that the product process actually there's a deadline we decided to sign up to it but you can see a, repl- a replication of that with the trade subsidies issue it's not really that we have a problem with what is there it's that we want an example we, we want india to be treated differently so therefore you should understand what india's issues are and provide that exception to us the civil nuclear deal with the united states mm-hmm. it's again a reflection of india being different therefore please give us something different but acknowledges us brings us in but gives us a little exception that you know we'll be able to do this so we want to be part of the global institutions but we also believe that you know in cases where time has passed mm-hmm. and we were not able to be there right at the beginning maybe the the world owes us an exception or a way a path in so that we a shortcut in so that we don't really have to go so wto should bear that in mind on the other hand we don't want wto to fail we want wto to succeed we believe it is useful um we want the united nations to be effective uh, we believe in that but we don't want the un to interfere hmm. so there's a dichotomy there as well which is that we want to be part of multilateral institutions but we prefer bilateral arrangements mm. because we feel that multilateral institutions may impinge on our autonomy mm. so we try to balance it out where you know be part of it but make sure that nothing they do because at one level we still see them as being discriminatory against developing countries poorer countries former colonized countries non western countries mm. yeah this makes sense um, in terms of the indian national interest right what would be best for india's growth its core national interests and so on but uh, is there a dichotomy in way the other countries view it because on one hand india says you know we're an aspiring great power and on the other hand it says no we need an exception on so many issues there has been a problem for example i mean you often find the americans asking mm-hmm. that you know why is it that 
on the one hand you want this on the other hand you don't really you want an exception so i mean you can take another example the i'm sure you've heard of those foundational agreements yes, the united yes. states would like us to sign so I, i i'm not sure the exact number but there are a very large number of countries which have signed them with the united mm. states but india signed only one of three and we would prefer if an exception was made for us whereas the counter argument is if 30 40 50 have signed and their autonomy hasn't been impinged then why would indian autonomy be impinged uh but what about indian foreign policy now under the current government how do you think that's changed um i i mean i see some parallels with with india's first prime minister but i also see with some of the others for example i'll tell you so Mr Modi has you know there's a very strong and you know zealous focus on foreign mm. policy which goes back to actually Jawaharlal Nehru not mm. as much the earlier prime mm. the other prime ministers the travels the building relations going to countries you haven't been and actually trying to explain things there's also the very intense personalization um every indian prime minister has personalized and made made his or her office very strong but there's a very strong concentration of power within the prime minister the prime minister's office which dates back to nehru um further direct contact with the people hmm. nehru was known to you know um give speeches in rural areas and explain to people why india should have relations with china or why something has happened when he was asked you would say you know i have need to explain it to them mm. so the man ki baat or twitter are ways in which there's a direct contact between the leader and the public and, and does he stress on foreign policy no the difference comes there the difference comes that nehru would actually explain foreign policy mm. nehru would nehru also wrote weekly uh, mm. fortnightly letters to chief ministers chief minister there has been so there's the, the change comes where that nehru believed he was a teacher Hmm. so he had to explain things to everybody hmm. um they very amusing ones also I've written in my book hmm. in which he actually explains things like you know what is the height of the broom which some <laughs> which which the person should use to mop on the floor so that his back doesn't hurt wow. and that it's you know also efficient so it ran ran the entire gamut from you know what is important to the united nations to the size of the broom hmm but the difference is that the focus now is more domestic focus mm. is now more on and that's i guess personalities mm. so the personality difference comes um i see the um the moral overtone people may not but i do i mean yoga mm. is there um the belief that 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 at every in almost every foreign trip there's been emphasis on what is the civilizational relationship mm-hmm. what is the cultural dimension mm-hmm. language the differences which come are things like diaspora mm-hmm. nehru had a very different view of the indian diaspora yeah, yeah. from what has happened in the last few years then the strategic dimension nehru did not really emphasize the strategic dimension that much for nehru it was relations but now there's an emphasis on when indian prime ministers visit then the emphasis on economy is on investment um defense deals on defense it. deals and indian diaspora wherever there is you know their relations and then um you know also um issues relating to you know so who so which grouping are you a part of brics or aiib and wto climate change so there are lot more issues which have come up hmm. uh which which make it different Finally there's also no cold war today. Hmm. So that dimension is out of it. On the other hand, India does have to decide or it does have to consider that there's a rising China, 
with a Russia which is no longer the Soviet Union and therefore is no longer the close relationship India had. India has close ties with the United States. But are we going to be you, uh, helping Japan build infrastructure mm-hmm. and that's how we counter OBOR? What are we going to do on the border the next time another Doklam takes place? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are our views on South China Sea? Mm-hmm. And finally, um, energy um, and oil uh, which matter, which do not matter in the 1950s and 1960s or even the 1980s. Hmm. Aparna, you're taking all the questions out of my mouth. I was going to ask you how Indian foreign policy should respond to all of these <laughs> with so, a new world order. How do you yeah, think Indian I mean, it's, you know, it's respond? My fear and the reason why I want to is, is that is that I believe that most of our institutions and our way of looking at the world is still Cold War. Hmm. and post-independence oriented. Hmm. It's defensive hmm. or let's say reactive. It's not proactive. There are people who argue we have strategic culture. There are people who argue we don't have strategic culture. Hmm. Those who say we do say we have Kautilya. Hmm. But then why haven't we had anybody after Kautilya in the last 2,400 years? Yeah. Those who argue that we, do, we don't have any um, and there's no strategy. Again, I don't agree. But what I do believe is that we don't really do, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 year out visions of, you know, what is the world going to be? We don't do the gaming which takes place and which should take place considering our size, considering our location and considering what many people believe should be what should be our foreign policy. So, mm-hmm. Whether or not we want to be a great power, we live in a region where we have where we have uh, fought wars, hmm. where we have border disputes, hmm. we are facing terrorism, which is global, and we have a very long land and maritime border. And finally, we if we want our economy to grow, then we need energy and we need investment. So for all of this, we do need to be interested in, and maybe we need... We need new ways of thinking or new approaches. And I don't see that. Mm. So the new world order, um, our reaction to anything China does is always reactive. So if China does something, then we react to it. Mm. We have uh, economic ties. We have strategic ties. We have a conversation, but we haven't really done anything in the last few years. For example, I mean, why is it that that despite discussions about India's military acquisition is going to improve and India going to modernize. We've been here for almost five or seven years. Yeah. How far down the road are we today? Everybody know. every Indian knows and leader knows that we should go to 8 to 10%. Hmm. We are falling behind and we, we have, I mean, we don't know when we will hit for 8%, forget about 10%. If we don't grow that at that rate, there's no way that we can um, either... Uh, sort of build the country or spend enough money on even education, health, forget about Third, you can travel the world and meet people and promise, but unless you are able to create an environment at home, mm. which is infrastructure, which has uh, which provides electricity, which provides, and you have people who can be employed, mm. people are not going to come and invest in your country. Next, China. China is built, China has a game. Hmm. And they are moving ahead with it. We need to have a discussion and then a counter game. Hmm. I see different views. I don't really see a counter game. Hmm. Counter game doesn't mean having a good relationship with the United States or 
um, seeking investment from Japan. It needs it needs a bold string, a, a bold string, yes. And that I don't really see, and I don't really know how much time that will take. Um, finally, we live in a world which has new threats arise in cyber and terrorism. Are we even thinking about that, or are we still fighting the old? you know conventional terrorism counter terrorism war in which you know you don't have you don't have enough manpower you don't have any enough intelligence you don't have enough technology and you don't even have a trained police force who can go from door to door and find out information about you okay which is dubious for that foreign policy this state of affairs it sounds uh, but when you were writing in the book what struck you the most I expected um there to be a lot more change uh from prime minister to prime minister and I was surprised by the extent of you know how their speeches hmm. and their actions were more like you know they resembled their predecessors hmm. a lot more which is why I start of my chapter on the individuals with that apocryphal story about you know that the nehru left a letter in every yeah. in every petition it is successor reads it only because it's it was so similar even if you come down to mr modi it's very interesting that you know there was a lot of indra had in common with nehru but rajiv but even the even vajpayee even narsimha rao um, even prime ministers you know like um so that second the fact that that in a in a country which is a parliamentary democracy for 70 years the parliament was supposed to play a role hmm. but we it doesn't really play a role except when it comes in emergencies so hmm. you know things like a war happening or yeah, a kargil yeah. or a kandahar happens um the fact that that's the committees of parliament hmm. if we have framed our parliament democracy on, on the british their committees play a much stronger role than ours do why have we never built them over the last hmm. 70 years some of the other things i knew you know for example the size of the foreign service mm-hmm. um and things like that but these are the ones which were which were striking that you know you have you need debate on foreign policy you don't have that debate on foreign policy unless you have a debate and unless you have people who have spent 10 15 years as politicians mm. studying foreign policy how do you ensure that there's one that there are people who can ask the right questions mm. and two that when they uh move up the ladder and become ministers they can actually ask relevant questions i believe we should apply to all spheres not just mm. foreign affairs um and finally the the fact that so many years later and the f- and so many reports later we our foreign policy still keeps uh experts out mm. and still keeps um uniformed service i mean serving and retired people out of strategy hmm. in this day and age there are very few countries which do that yeah. yeah civilian supremacy can be ensured it's ensured in united states as well hmm. and many other countries but you do need to involve people outside of those 770 or 800 foreign service officers you that you have there are people outside there are people in think tanks there are people who write there are people in the media there are people who have retired there are people in the in the uniformed services who know and their input should come in hmm. and it's a, and it's interesting that that um, we have not really paid that much attention to it till recently it's changing now but as you know this takes it's it's a long process it takes some time true uh, hopefully we will start at least 
through books and podcasts to start bolstering debates around the country about foreign policy. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being here, Rafa. Thank you. All It's right. a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Pragati Podcast. You can listen to the Pragati Podcast on the IVM Podcast app or any other podcasting app that you like to use, and of course on thinkpragati.com. We'll see you next time. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. Sorry to say, but there's been a slight delay due to the apocalypse having suddenly begun. As you can see, there's death, destruction, and chaos taking place all around us. But don't you worry; food and drinks will be served shortly, and I would recommend checking out IVM Podcasts to get some of your favorite Indian podcasts. We'll keep you going till this whole thing blows over. Thank you.